This morning we're moving into Mark chapter 5, and we'll be skipping forward to verse 21. Last week, of course, Pastor Steve was scheduled to preach in the first half of this chapter, and because we were snowed out, he'll be doing that uh, next week. So we're a little bit out of order. Uh, But then on the 14th, actually on Valentine's Day, we'll begin our study uh, for Lent, and we'll be looking at the seven deadly sins uh, as we think of Lent preparing us for, uh, for Easter. Um, so that will, that will start in a couple weeks. In our passage this morning, the disciples and Jesus are returning to Capernaum, the place that he's been, the, sort of the home base for his ministry so far. Uh, we saw a couple weeks ago that on the first leg of this journey, as they left Capernaum, of course, was the great storm, and now they're returning on seas that are less bumpy. Um, so read with me from uh, Mark 5. Uh, it's on page 710 if you're using the the Pew Bibles. Uh, we'll start in verse 21 and we'll read the rest of the chapter. So it's a long passage this morning. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Some of you perhaps may have seen the news story a few weeks ago about Henry Worsley, who was the British explorer who had set out to cross Antarctica alone on foot with no support. A few people have crossed Antarctica alone, but he wanted to, I guess, do the biggest challenge possible. He wanted to do it with no support, so no supply drops, no sled dogs, 
No, there was another man who did it with a kite that helped him to pull his, uh, his things along. He didn't want a kite. He began in November pulling his sled with all of his food, all of his tent, everything else that he needed for the trip. In the course of 71 days, he covered 913 miles uh, before giving up and having to be airlifted out. He only had 30 miles to go. The, the even more tragic part of the story was that once he was airlifted out, he was found to have a serious infection. He was treated at a base there in Antarctica. They had tried to fly him to South America, and he ended up dying along the way. When he had initially decided to give up, he said that his journey ended because he just didn't have the ability to slide one ski in front of the other. He said, my summit is just out of reach, just 30 miles to go. His journey was described by some as the most difficult form of travel on earth, owing to the fact that each day your body can't recover fully during the periods of sleep. So as you go along each day, you have less and less capacity to continue. And for him, 71 days led to the end of his ability. He hit the limit of his humanity. There was nothing else that he felt like he could do to continue on. Mark 5 contains the stories of three people, and each of them has hit the limit of themselves. Now, our limits aren't just physical, like Antarctic explorers, of course. We have emotional limits. We have mental limits. We have things that we can't move past. We have barriers in our lives that we feel like, when we feel like, we can't go on. And these three people in Mark 5 have a problem that can't be solved by themselves. And even worse, and even worse than Mr. Worsley, these people can't even be helped by others. Not just have they reached the limit of themselves, but all human effort has been exhausted on their behalf. Nothing else can be done for them in this chapter. We didn't read the first part of the chapter, but the first character that we meet is this demon-possessed man, and it tells us in verses 3 and 4 that he was beyond help, that he couldn't be bound, not even with a chain, that no one could subdue him, that no one could aid him, that no one could help him in any way in his destructive state. The second person is this woman. No one could help her, not even the best doctors. She couldn't help herself. Similarly, Jairus' daughter is also beyond assistance when she becomes deathly ill and dies before Jesus can get there. All three are beyond the reach of human help. These are stories about people who are desperate, who are clinging to hope, or people who are past hope and have actually given up. What's amazing about these stories is, of course, that Jesus arrives, and that makes everything different, and that changes the equation. Before we get into them, just for a moment, I want to focus on the place of miracles in Jesus' ministry, because as we've been in, in Mark's gospel since September, we've already seen a number of miracle stories of physical healings of different kinds, and summary statements saying that Jesus healed everyone in the town that was sick. They brought all kinds of people to him, and he healed everyone. And why are these stories here? What do they, how do they function? And why are these particular ones? If he healed everyone in the town, why does he, 
Why does Mark tell us about the paralytic? Why does Mark tell us about the little girl? Why does Mark tell us about the man with leprosy? And so I just wanted to give a couple perspectives on these questions. First, of course, the miracles are showing us Jesus' power, and we've seen that all along, that they're revealing something of his identity, of who he is, that he can do this, that he can control nature, that he can heal any kind of disease and any kind of illness that's brought to him, that he's more powerful than all of it. It shows who he, that who, who he is, that he's divine, his nature, and his power. Second, sometimes Jesus uses miracles in their context to prove a particular point. The healing of the paralyzed man, of course you remember in chapter 2, is about the, proving the point that Jesus can per- forgive sins, right? which is easier to say. I forgive your sins or get up on your mat and walk. But so that you'll know that I can forgive sins, I tell you, get up and walk, right? The, the, the man in, in chapter 3 with the withered hand functions similarly. The miracle is pointing out something about the Sabbath and the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. So sometimes miracles have that kind of function. And third, I think Jesus uses miracles to show that he's fixing what's wrong with the world. And all of his miracles are restorative. They're redemptive. They're, they're pointing to the promise of a real and physical world that's free from brokenness. The arrival of the kingdom of God, come in Jesus, is the first step in this remaking of the world. And so, miracles of healing give us a sign. It's a billboard that shows that the mending of all things is coming. So, so these are some of the... I just kind of wanted to put that out there at the beginning to, to remind us why are miracle stories here. And what are they telling us about who Jesus is, what he can do, and what the kingdom of God means in terms of the remaking of the world? As we get into our text, we see, of course, that they crossed back over to uh, the area of Capernaum. There's this big crowd that meets them, and into this crowd comes this important person. Uh, Verse 22, then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. Jairus is introduced to us as one of the chiefs or heads of the synagogue. This was a real title. There are lots of examples of it that have been found throughout the Mediterranean world of, of, on, on tombstones and other places of who was the head of this synagogue at particular times. Some would have multiple elders in this role, sometimes it would be just one person, but it was kind of responsible for keeping up the building, responsible for safeguarding the scrolls, uh, responsible for uh, some oversight of, of the teaching and promoting orthodoxy. Um, so, so it was an important person. There are a number of uh, instances also in all of the archaeological evidence that women could perform this role, that it was a role that was done by lay people, not by professionals in order to be the head of the synagogue. And so Mark is mentioning that Jairus is an important person. He's a well-respected person. And he's coming here in desperation. He's falling on his knees and he's pleading for help. So Jesus agrees to go with his house, to his house, but they get interrupted along the way. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years and she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had and yet instead of getting better she grew worse when she heard about jesus she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought if i just touch his clothes i will be healed 
And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt her, in her body that she was freed from her suffering. In the parallel account in Luke, it reads that the crowds were pressing so close that they almost crushed Jesus. This is a chaotic scene, right? People are pressing around from every direction. People are following Jesus. People are making requests of him. People are trying to get his attention. And then we get this woman who kind of comes onto the scene with her own kind of desperation, and she's kind of the opposite of Jairus, isn't she? She's unnamed. She's poor. She's not well-known or well-respected. She doesn't have a place of prominence or a title in the community. And her condition is described in verse 29, the word that's used for, for it says suffering in our Bibles, but it's like tormenting. Like her condition is one of torment. And Mark paints a vivid picture for us. She has suffered. She has exhausted her wealth. She has not gotten better. She's gotten worse. She's been plagued for 12 years. She's not been helped by many doctors. She spent all that she had. To make her life worse, her condition made her ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus 15. So she would be unable to worship at the yearly festivals at the temple. She could make people around her unclean also. So theoretically, she would, be, uh, she would have to make known to everyone else that she was unclean so that they wouldn't touch her on accident and then also become unclean, unaware. And so all of her social life, all of her relationships, all of her religious life was undermined by this unsolvable problem. Her desperation drives her to Jesus, to risk touching him, to see if indeed she might find a cure when she hears about all of the things that he's done. Her inner dialogue in verse 28 sounds a bit interesting, like, like, like she's, I don't know, like she's trying to find some kind of magical cure or something, like just that she would just touch his clothing and that she thinks that that would heal her. But to her amazement, or it's even better to say, in vindication of her faith, it actually happens. She touches Jesus' clothes and she feels herself to be healed. Can you imagine just for a moment what it would be like for her, suffering for 12 years, and to know in an instant her life, she's healed. She's completely well. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Even in her great relief and freedom and joy at being healed, right, the account reads like she's trying to escape without notice. And based on her life, we can understand why. She would be, have been ashamed to be out in public. She shouldn't have been in this crowd touching all of these people, making them unclean, right? She would have had to push her way in. She would have, you know, it's, it's, she's taking a great risk, and perhaps her greatest fear, other than the fact that she wouldn't be healed, perhaps her greatest fear is that she would be found out and that her presence would be exposed to the entire crowd. But Jesus calls her out, and she can't hide, and some have suggested that Jesus didn't know what happened, you know, as he's asking who touched me. I don't think 
I mean, he's, you know, maybe he makes it appear like he doesn't know. I don't think that he didn't know. I think that he's just trying to draw out, draw her out, so that she would reveal herself. Uh, Given all that we know, if you think about it, it almost sounds kind of mean, doesn't it? Like, Jesus is making her exposed before the crowd. Like, he's giving up, you know, her secret. Wouldn't it have been kinder to kind of let her get away without anyone knowing? Well, I think Jesus had a special blessing for her in this event beyond her healing. Because when she realizes that she can't get away, she comes falling at his feet and trembling with fear, and then she tells the whole truth. In Luke's parallel account, it says, in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. The woman is forced to share her story, her testimony, her personal story of illness, of despair, of hope, of risk, of healing. The whole thing she had to tell in front of all of these people, in the midst of her fear, and yet relief that she's been healed, like, you know, it's, it's moving. And it would have been moving to hear it, wouldn't it? To hear a tale of great suffering and of healing. And so Jesus, I think, is giving the crowd a gift. He's giving her a gift to be able to share with all of the people what he's done. And he, of course, then gives her a blessing, a a benediction. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And to this amazing moment, it's amazing the way the story is written, isn't it? Comes terrible and opposite news. In verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. We presume that Jairus watched this whole event with the woman. What would he have been feeling? Probably awe, probably amazement with everyone else in the crowd, but maybe also frustration. My daughter is at death's door. Jesus is going to my house, and now we've been interrupted. And he's been delayed. And now, just as Jesus is saying to the woman... Your faith has healed you. Jairus gets news that his daughter has died. It's it's simultaneous. It's a moment of great tension, right? What would it have been like to be there? And Jesus speaks a word of challenge and comfort to Jairus. Don't listen to them. Don't fear. Just believe. Certainly easier said than done. They arrive at Jairus' house. There are these professional mourners who are already there. They would hire people who would come and and wail and play music. Uh, And when someone died, of course, a very different different cultural tradition than ours. I can't imagine anything worse. But um, Jesus gives them also a challenge to believe, right? She's not dead. She's sleeping. I mean, they knew better because they... uh, knew what happened, you know, they knew the people died. It wasn't like the girl was just sleeping, really. But they laughed at him. 
And all three gospel writers who tell this story include the fact that, that they laughed at him. They thought they knew better, that hope really was lost, and that every human effort had failed. But they were wrong. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So there's this very private moment. Jesus puts the others out except for the parents and the three disciples. He heals her. And Mark gives us this detail of the Aramaic expression that he use, uses, which, you know, it's another example of this kind of eyewitness detail, the history writing that we've seen many times in Mark's gospel. And the girl is immediately raised to life. She stands up and begins to walk around. This is the first resum- resurrection miracle that we find in Mark. So again, here's another proof of another kind of amazing thing that Jesus can do, even when hope seems lost. That's the story. What about for us today? How do we hear these stories? What does it mean to us? I think it makes us wish that Jesus was here, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We feel the same kind of desperation. Sometimes it doesn't seem like help is coming. And in a way, maybe it isn't, maybe not in the same way. On this side of the empty tomb, we have the promises that the people who were in these stories didn't have. We have a greater proof, in a way, but a promise that we haven't seen with our eyes, but that it tells us we're blessed if we believe it anyway. The gospel calls us to hope for greater things beyond this life. So what do we take away from our passage this morning? Generally, in speech classes and in preaching classes, they say give like three application points, because that's about all the average person can remember. Usually, I kind of stick to something like that. Today, I've given, what, seven? I just wanted to highlight a bunch of different things. As I was thinking over the passage and mulling over it, it hits us differently. And so here's some thoughts for you to consider and apply to your life this morning. I'm not expecting you to be able to recite all seven to me afterwards. But I trust that the Lord might speak to us uh, through one or more of these. First, human efforts will fail. The story tells us that there will be times in our lives where we're helpless before our circumstances. Our society tries to deny this, right? We want to be in control of everything. And that's so much what drives Um, marketing and all of these things, right? And so this feeling of being helpless before a situation can be a great challenge to our faith. We need or want something desperately. We want to prevent something desperately with all of our hearts, but we can't. And all of our efforts and all of the efforts by others on our behalf aren't successful. And so if this is the kind of place that you're in this morning, I hope that you see in this story that Jesus is with you. Not exactly in the same way as these accounts, of course, but in a way that's just as real, in a way that's just as vital. I need to take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows my weakness and that his grace really is sufficient for when I'm unable. 
Like, he knows our weaknesses. He knows we're unable. He knows we have limits. And the story tells us that that's reality. But that doesn't mean that he's not there. Related to this, present circumstances don't always determine the outcome. Right? God can do remarkable and unexpected things. Our lives are in his hands. We can't trace out the end from the beginning. We so often lose perspective when we're in the middle, when we have to look at our own circumstances. But sometimes we just need to give up our expectation that we will know what will happen. And we have to trust God with the unfolding of events in our lives, not knowing whether we should take this job or not, not knowing how we should decide about this or that, not knowing what will happen when we receive some kind of diagnosis. That's where faith is difficult, isn't it? The third thing to notice is that Jesus cares about women and girls. It's obvious, but I think it's particularly worth mentioning. And I think of this because of the way that Mark and the other gospel writers tell the story of Jesus particularly and specifically honoring women. In the culture of Jesus' day, it was held that women couldn't be a witness in a court of law, but Jesus made this woman witness to something much greater, didn't he? He made her a testifier of his power, of his divinity, of his amazing ability to do what no one else could do. Mark preserves these stories against the grain of the culture, right? Because Jesus went against the grain of the culture in the way that he valued women explicitly and equally with men, in the way that they followed him, in the way that he ministered to them. And I think that's worth noting, particularly within the context of of when it was written and how people thought. Related to the fact, the story gives us two people from opposite ends of the sociological scale, right? So there's this well-respected man, and there's this, this anonymous, afflicted woman. There's the religious leader, an important person in the synagogue, and there's the person who's a religious outcast, who's cut off from corporate worship, who can't participate. And so Jesus is cutting across social lines too, isn't he, in his love for people. He's not a respecter of persons in their outside stuff, right? He's looking at the heart. And we see so often, don't we, how Jesus reverses conventional wisdom about who gets God's blessing. And Jesus looks to those who know their need rather than those who think that they're self-sufficient and that they don't need him. Next, I think the story has this interesting feature in the delay of Jesus' healing. While Jesus was delayed, the girl died. It reminded me also of the story of Lazarus in John 11, right? His sister sent for Jesus to come, but purposefully Jesus delayed and arrived only after Lazarus had died. And in both cases, Jesus comes through in the end, but not until after the worst had happened. And questions about God's timing, we feel, don't we? They're hard to answer. We know in our lives of hope deferred, how hard it is to keep the flame of hope alive for years and decades of waiting and unanswered prayers. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. The gospel tells us that our longings will be fulfilled. 
in the picture of Revelation 22, in the middle of, new, of the New Jerusalem, is what? Is the tree of life. And it bears its fruit every month, and on its leaves are for the healing of the nations. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life, and every longing will be fulfilled when we see the tree of life. Until then, of course, we experience the reality of longing. If we didn't experience any kind of longing, that would mean we're just satisfied with this life, right? We're satisfied with this world, that there's nothing better than it. It's all we know, of course, and we cling to it tightly. But if we admit it, we do know that it's broken and that we want something better, don't we? In these events also, we see the prominence of faith. Jesus said it was the woman's faith which healed her. Jesus healed her, of course. You know, he's the one, of course, by whom it wasn't like faith is some sort of magical, mystical substance that made her healed, right? He healed her. But, faith, but he told her that faith was the instrument by which she's healed. And the word for healed is also, in Greek, is also the word for, for saved, so it's really kind of ambiguous, right? Was Jesus talking about physical healing? Was Jesus talking about spiritual salvation? Was he talking about both? It's kind of hard to... We don't know, but in the context, we translate it healed because that's what happened about her illness. But Jesus is saying that she's demonstrating the kind of faith in him that makes her whole, that encompasses her physical and her spiritual needs in a way that she's being restored that speaks to her deepest longings and her deepest needs. And finally, I think we see also the way that faith is a means by which fear is displaced. Jesus tells Jairus not to fear, but to have faith. And somehow the place that fear takes in our heart, it's hard to describe, but somehow the place that fear takes in our heart can be pushed out by faith. And I don't mean to say that faith is the absence of fear, and that if you're afraid, that means you don't have faith. Of course not. But I can't get around the fact in these stories, and we saw it with the, with the uh, calming of the storm too, Jesus invites and challenges Jairus and us to a greater faith which will combat his fear which will push back on his fear, which will relativize his fear. And I think that there's the nature of faith that includes this kind of trust. Fear seeks to undermine that kind of trust, right? Fear says you're alone in the world. Fear says God doesn't care. Fear says you have to control your own circumstances because no one else is looking out for you. But faith says the universe isn't random. My life is in someone's hands. And though I can't control it all, I can't control a lot of things. I know someone who can. And we have to say those things by faith, don't we? Because so often we can't see it. So those are my thoughts to consider. How does that change us this morning? How does it apply to your life? How does it strike you? The gospel tells us that the great divine solution 
There is a great divine solution. There is a solution to the problem that humans can't fix. That there's a rescuer who came alone to meet our greatest needs, to solve our unsolvable problems. And he invites us to trust him like this woman. He challenges us to a greater faith. And he met those... The story is about meeting those in the midst of their weakness with compassion. And as he did it for these people, we trust that he'll do it for us. That he'll meet us in the midst of our weakness with compassion. He promises to do so. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for stories that accounts that tell us that you are strong when we're weak, uh, that our weakness doesn't push us away from you, but that moves us towards you. And so we pray as we consider these things this week, as we think about uh, this passage, as we think about our own lives, we pray that you would work, that you would meet us uh, in the story, help us to see the ways that you are meeting our needs and the ways that you are, are helping us and help us to have faith when we see our hope deferred and when we see longings that we can't meet. God, we ask that you would be near to your people. Continue to strengthen us through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.